This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Greetings, Gothamites. Lane here. Welcome to episode 17 of Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose, where the only pictures are those formed in the imagination. Today we're discussing chapters 13 and 14 of Batman The Ultimate Evil, written by Andrew Vax. A shout out to Palo Wedge and Steph M on Discord, and to you folks on Twitter. Thank you guys so much. Alright, let's dive into chapter 13, which starts on page 121. Chapter 13, Scene 1. The Batmobile entered the highway from its place of concealment, merging with the traffic stream, heading for Gotham. The Knight Rider drove with shrouded lights, relying on the sonar system and his own ability to pilot the vehicle under minimum visibility conditions. The video screen scrolled data on the man he was about to meet. Trask, comma, Sherwood. D.O.B. 8-16-44. 51. 5 foot, 4 inches. 156. Brown. Blue. B-A-C-J-G-C-C. 1966. M-A-C-M-G-C-C. 1988. A college graduate majoring in criminal justice at Gotham City. A master's degree in criminology 22 years later. The Batman frowned at the disparity between the two dates, but the next scroll answered his unspoken question. U.S. Army. 87th Infantry. Vietnam. 1967 to 1969. Bronze Stars, 2. Purple Heart, 1. Gotham PD, 1970 to current. Current assignment, Commander, Intensive Supervision Team. Departmental Commendations, 21. The Batman opened the file and discovered that Trask had been decorated for everything from heroism under fire to tracking down a serial child molester. Departmental Disciplinary Proceedings, 4. This file showed four separate civilian complaints, all involving excessive force. Two of the complaints had been referred to a grand jury. Trask had never been indicted, nor had disciplinary action against him ever been sustained. Batman docks the Batmobile in a discreet place and takes to the rooftops over the Bowery. He sees a flash of white on a six-story building, and he sweeps down to land. The flash of white Batman saw was a t-shirt under an old army jacket. As he approaches, the man unfolds his arms. He's holding a pistol in each hand. Batman bows. Sherwood Trask. The man returns the bow, but demands a number. Batman repeats the number Gordon had given him. 29. Trask nods and puts away the guns, then shakes Batman's hands. He asks what Batman wants to know. What can you tell me about Leonard Tuxley? He's a chronic child molester. A pedophile? 
No, not a pedophile. That's their word, not ours. We learn that Tuxley was busted for molesting at least half a dozen boys. He obtained access to them by being a private tutor. Tuxley pled guilty, and the judge decided he needed treatment, not prison. Basically, he got off with psychiatric probation. Batman mentions that Tuxley was in prison when he was killed. Trask says, Yeah, he violated the terms and conditions of his probation. That's about the only hold we have on those guys. We can't make the court send them to prison, but we sure as hell can make them walk a straight line when they're under our supervision. The condition that Tuxley violated was no videotaping children, even at Little League games or ice skating activities. Tuxley was initially sent to a minimum security joint and got, quote, rehabilitated. He did a third of his sentence and was paroled. Then the intensive supervision team went back to Tuxley's house and found boxes of kiddie porn in the basement. The images were even catalogued. Batman asks if Tuxley had taken the photos himself, but Trask, a.k.a. Woody, doesn't know yet. Tuxley got locked up again for parole violation. The investigative unit had still been going through the stash when they heard Tuxley had been shanked in prison. It'll take months to sort out the mess. Batman says, I thought probation officers, parole officers, I thought what you did was some sort of social work. Trask replies, For some, it is, especially with juveniles. And for a lot of our clients, we can do some real good. Sometimes all a guy needs is a job, or to stop drinking, or a high school education. They want help, we can usually give it to them. But the IST isn't about rehabilitation. It's about protection of society. We work with the stone recidivists. We expect problems, and we're ready to deal with them when they surface. Trask acknowledges Batman's question that Tuxley did indeed go on sex tours to Udon Kai. Batman is taken aback when he learns Trask had bugged Tuxley's phone. When he calls him out on it, Trask laughs and says, Let me get this straight. You're calling me a vigilante? Point. Batman bows again and disappears into the night. My notes? Every time I come across the phrase Knight Rider, this plays in my head. Again, another point for Vax for Stealth Mode Batmobile. First it was the full electric power to run silent, now it's sonar so that he can dim the lights. Wouldn't that be kind of freaky if you were a bad guy, thinking you were getting away with something, but then you just start to notice something moving behind you, only to realize it's the giant Batmobile that's been following you for 10 miles, waiting for the perfect time to strike? Yeah, just something creepy about that. Batman, don't throw shade at people who go back to college many years later. So what if Trask didn't go back for a master's degree for 22 years? Even if he hadn't been in the military, sometimes life gets in the way. Some of us aren't billionaires, dude. Seriously. The opaque discs on the eyes of Batman's cowl is interesting. I'm surprised it's not integrated more into live-action movies. I mean, that would save him from the need to put on dark makeup around his eyes. Of course, they don't say that's what he does, but come on, he would have to. Adam West is the only one who can get away with not having his eyes shrouded in darkness. It seems Batman gets a little more info from Trask, but perhaps nothing groundbreaking, Maybe just some confirmation of things already hinted at. Okay, chapter 13, scene 2. It's a short one. Three days later, a jumbo jet lifted off from the Gotham International Airport. Flight 67 to San Francisco was right on time. Bruce Wayne had been one of the last aboard, 
sliding into seat 2G, undisturbed. He always took a window seat in first class. It minimized the prospect of interaction with other passengers, especially on long flights. The little brunette stewardess was used to passengers whose idea of flirting was to stare at her legs or make crudely suggestive remarks. She never let it bother her. Just part of the job, she thought to herself. The blandly handsome man in 2G was a surprise. Not that he actually ignored me, she said to her roommate that evening. It was more like I wasn't there at all. Maybe he was just preoccupied, the roommate said. You know, big businessman and all. Maybe so, the stewardess said, unconvinced. My notes? For whatever reason, blandly handsome makes me think of a good-looking jar of mayonnaise. Am I wrong? I know that Bruce is going to Udon Kai as part of his mission, but it seems quite dangerous to him. Uh, not physically, but if it gets out that Bruce Wayne went to this part of the world asking questions about that type of sex trade, oof, that, yeah, I don't think that would be a black mark that his reputation would be able to recover from. So, I'm um, curious how he, he gets around that. Uh, that does it for chapter 13. When we come back, we'll start chapter 14. Stay tuned. Hello, gentle listener. Are you a lover of horror, dark tales, stories of the uncanny and unimaginable? If the answer is yes, you need to subscribe to Nocturnal Transmissions, the fortnightly podcast that brings you dark tales, both old and new, performed by voice artist Kristen Holland. You'll find us on all good podcast providers, including Spotify, or seek us out through our website, nocturnaltransmissions.com.au. We do so hope you can join us. My name is Dr. Andrea Letamendi, clinical psychologist. And I'm Brian Ward, nerd. And we want to invite you to listen to our new podcast, The Arkham Sessions. It's a podcast dedicated to the fun and geeky analysis of Batman the Animated Series, episode by episode. We pay tribute to the writers and the stories of the animated series. While also exploring the very real psychology behind Gotham's rogues. And maybe even its heroes. All of this and more each week on the Arkham Sessions at underthemaskonline.com. Welcome back, folks. Let's dig into Chapter 14. Chapter 14, Scene 1. Bruce Wayne caught a cab at the airport. The cab took him to the Cheshire Hotel. He waited patiently at the reception desk until a clerk detached himself from an animated conversation with a young woman in a waitress outfit and strolled over. Can I help you? he asked. I have a reservation, Bruce Wayne began when he was interrupted by the clerk slapping a bell on the countertop and shouting, Front! at the same time. That won't be necessary, Bruce Wayne started to say, but it was too late. A husky bellman was already at his side, bending forward to wrap his hand around the handle to Bruce Wayne's large alligator suitcase. The bellman straightened up. A jolt of pain shot across his face. What in the hell is in? A set of weights, Bruce Wayne said casually. For working out. I always carry them on the road with me. Wow, the bellman said, impressed despite himself. I mean, the guy was big all right, but not that big, 
he told a couple of other bellmen when they were all on the break. Fact is, he looked kind of, I don't know, soft maybe, but he picked that suitcase up like it was nothing. Inside his suite, Bruce Wayne unpacked with great care, assembling various items on a long tray of white ceramic. He used a handheld scanner to sweep the interior for eavesdropping devices, then checked the windows for potential access from outside. It was 40 minutes before he picked up the tray and walked into the bathroom. In another 40 minutes, another man walked out. The other man was older than Bruce Wayne. Heavier, too. His hair was slicked back from his forehead, revealing a jagged scar on his right temple. His brown eyes were set in a round, almost oriental face. The man replaced the tray inside the alligator suitcase and twirled the combination lock tumblers after he snapped it shut. Then he picked up the receiver and punched a number into the keypad. Safe house, a voice answered. Could I speak to Dudley Dave? The man asked. Who should I say is calling? The voice responded. Big Jack Hollister, the man in the hotel said. In less than a minute, a man's voice came on the line. This is Dave, he said. Big Jack Hollister, I understand you're expecting my call. I might be. Who gave you that understanding? Victor C. Good enough. What can I do for you? I need some of your time, that's all. Do you know the Lavender Dragon? I can find it. Any time after ten tonight, just ask for me at the bar. My notes? What the hell is in the suitcase? I pack heavy. On justice! Sorry, I couldn't resist. So big Jack Hollister. I was kind of hoping for a Matches Malone. Oh well. Bruce Wayne, Master of Disguise. Also Deadly Dave. How is that for a nickname? You could have Deadly Dave. Kind of makes you nauseous kin. There's just something about him, Theo. Again, I'm kind of concerned with the danger to Bruce Wayne for coming to this country and, and asking for these services. I mean, yes, he's in disguise, but there's probably a, well, if not a credit card trail, some kind of paper trail. I'm sure he covers his tracks, but it just seems it, it would have been so much easier for him to have chartered a private jet. I mean, we know he has the funds to do so. And good thing uh, airport security was a bit more lax. He might have had some trouble getting some of this equipment through, but again, all could have been avoided with chartering a private jet. Chapter 14, Scene 2 The man who called himself Big Jack Hollister flagged down a cab. When it pulled to the curb, he climbed into the back seat. Do you know where the Lavender Dragon is? He asked the driver. Yeah, sure, but look, I mean, it ain't none of my business, but that joint is only for... You're right. Big Jack said in a flinty voice, It ain't none of your business. The rest of the trip was blissfully quiet as the cabbie sulked in silence. His sulking changed to anger when the passenger handed him exact change. What's the matter, pal? He sneered. A little tip's gonna break you? You got a problem? Big Jack said quietly, leaning back inside the cab. You wanna come out here and discuss it? The cab took off, tire squealing. Big Jack makes his way through the club and waited calmly until a man wearing a bright yellow t-shirt and a leather apron leans on the bar and asks, What'll it be? Big Jack asks for Deadly Dave. The bartender moves off for a moment then comes back and says, Last booth on the right. Big Jack walks over to the booth and there is one man with delicate features and hard eyes. And he stands as Big Jack approaches. They shake hands. Tell me what you need, Dave says. Big Jack says, You know about a man named Draco? He lives on a yacht in the Dragon Fire Marina over on... And Dave replies that yes, he knows him. He knows his name, and he knows his game. Big Jack asks, Is it true he sets up kitty sex tours to Udon Kai? 
Dave replies, Sure, it's true. Why do you think he named his yacht the Lollipop? He's not only a sleaze, he's proud of it. Big Jack also asks him if he knows a man named William X. Malady, but Dave has never heard of him. Big Jack asks about people going on such tours, and Dave says he knows of such people, and that there's nothing homosexual about men having sex with boys. He continues, Those filthy pedophiles are always trying to throw in with us, always trying to make it an issue of sexual liberation instead of what it really is. Big Jack says that he needs to get over there to Unankai. What can you tell me about the operation? Dave replies, They screen real carefully. If you can get past that, whatever you can pay for, you get. The costs vary. The cheapest is just for passage into the country. Udon Kai has a tight visa policy, and there's normally a wait of six months for clearance. But if you go on one of Draco's tours, you can get a visa the same day. So if all you want is to buy a ticket to Pedophile Paradise, you can do it for around ten grand, everything included. What's everything? Big Jack asks. Dave replies, Not what you think. It just means a round-trip ticket and four nights at a hotel. Anything extra you have to find for yourself. Otherwise, you can pay to have it all brought to you. That's 25000 and up, depending on what you want to do. With a child? Jack asks. Yes, with a child. What do you think we're talking about here, Club Med? So all it takes is money and connections. Big Jack says, Then I could go on one of those tours. Dave replies, I don't think so. They have one final requirement. The acid test, they call it. Unfortunately, this acid test involves having sex with a child. They supply the child and they videotape it. And that way they know you're the real thing. And that you won't talk if anything goes wrong. Big Jack closes his eyes. A waiter comes by and they order some food and water. Finally, Jack asks, Why do they call you Deadly Dave? Dave replies, I used to box when I was a kid. Strictly amateur, but I was pretty good at it. Why did you stop? The real fights aren't in some prize ring, Dave said. And the real fighters aren't there either. My notes? Okay, I'm curious to see how Bruce Wayne gets past this acid test that they're talking about. Not a whole lot action-wise here, but Bruce Wayne, of course, gets a lot more information figuring out what he'll need to do to get over to Udonkai, how his character will be vetted, the amount that it will cost, not that that is a factor for him. Chapter 14, Scene 3. There's a lot of dialogue here, so you know what that means. Rest in Peace Theater is proud to present That Time Batman and Alfred Planet Trip. Special guest star, fiancé of the show, Ian! At 1.13am, a phone number was punched into the keypad of the phone in Bruce Wayne's San Francisco hotel room. But it wasn't Bruce Wayne making the call. It wasn't Big Jack Hollister either. The plans are changed. The tour route is off. I have to go in alone. Would you pull Oolong Kai up on the mainframe so that I can get some questions answered? Certainly, sir. Alfred answered, as alert after midnight as he was at the break of day. After a seven-second wait, Alfred spoke. I have the information on the screen, awaiting questions. Do you have a step reference map available? Searching? Yes. Can you beam it over on frequency 4? Are you set up to receive? Yes, the Batman replied, his eyes going to the open suitcase where a cellular phone rested in a cradle between a tiny liquid crystal screen and a three-inch wide plain paper laser printer. Stand by. 
The Batman eyed the data port, watching as the diagrammatic representation scrolled past, too fast to read. The plain paper laser printer was spooling as well. When it finally stopped, the Batman quickly pulled the paper strips, tore them where indicated, and fastened them to the corkboard that backed the inside of the suitcase. He studied the maps for a long minute, sipping from a glass of water as he did so. The map showed a triangular-shaped area at the intersection of Myanmar, Laos, and Thailand. Its topography was generally mountainous, with a number of plateaus. The Mekong River flowed through the small country with numerous tributaries clearly shown on the map. The Batman referenced the scale at the bottom of the map, quickly calculating in his head that the country was roughly 10,000 square miles, with the average elevation being 6,000 feet above sea level. In tiny print in the lower right corner of the map, the Batman read, Notes 1. Coordinates 21.54 degrees north, 99.00 degrees east. 2. Myanmar, formerly called Burma. General data. The official name of the country is the Kingdom of Udong Kai, apparently reflecting an older form of government. What is the current form of government? A military dictatorship. The third such regime in succession. Population? Very sparse, sir. A total of perhaps 400,000 people. 450 at the most. This works out to a density of 41 per square mile. That is an average, of course. It varies from a low of 11 in the highlands to a high of 6,500 in the capital. Which is? May now, located within a short drive from the airport. Population is approximately 250,000. What else? Udon Kai has a three-season climate, no winters. It is subject to monsoons, but less so than its neighbours. As you can see from the map, it is landlocked. There are access roads across all three borders, but no information on such roads can be considered secure. Because? Guerrilla activity. The area is almost permanently unstable. The safest entry point is General Paul Zanro Airport. This is an ultra-modern facility that can accommodate aircraft of any size, up to and including the SST and long-range fighter bombers. How does the country maintain itself? Not very well, sir. Per capita income is less than $150 per year. They import almost everything. Petroleum products, small machinery, motor vehicles, heavy equipment, chemicals, home appliances, medical supplies, assault weapons, military hardware. Shall I go on? No. Do they export anything at all? Teak is the principal export, and even that valuable resource is being rapidly depleted. They have no conservation or replenishment plan in place. What do they grow there? Udon Kai has significant crops of coffee, tobacco and rice, with lesser amounts of cotton. There are tin deposits and some jade as well. The teak wood, as I said before. And of course poppies. For opium? Yes, sir. Next to tourism, opium is the country's biggest cash producer. When the tourism file is opened, the computer says... I know what it says about that. Very well, sir. Will there be anything else? Yes. What can you tell me about the government? In conventional Western terms, there isn't much to speak of. The current dictator is one General Lin Fan Yum. There is a large standing army of almost 20,000. No navy, of course. Their air force concentrates on short strike capability, Harrier jump jets and Bell LOH helicopters. All their wars are either internal or near their borders, mostly with drug lords. 
there had been a tacit agreement between the government and various warlords to share in the opium profits, but once this became commonly known, foreign aid was drastically cut. One of the principal warlords has been targeted for assassination by the military dictatorship. If captured alive, there is no doubt he would implicate the current leadership. Politically, there is complete press censorship. One television channel, one radio transmitter, one newspaper. The rebels occasionally broadcast on an outlaw radio band, but that is sporadic. Who are the rebels? The official party line is that there are no rebels. All the attacks are attributed to communist forces from one of the surrounding countries. With the breakup of the Soviet Empire, this explanation is not especially plausible. The best information indicates that the rebels are made up of young people who fled the cities from the mountains, and even that information cannot be considered reliable. Are religious leaders involved in the rebel movement? That is impossible to determine at this time. The official religion is Theravada Buddhism, but animism is practiced among some of the mountain tribes. Currency? The official unit is the Klong. Exchange rate is 627 Klong per US dollar at close of business yesterday. The currency is highly unstable, and trafficking in foreign currencies is a crime punishable by death. They have the death penalty for currency trading? They have the death penalty for 87 separate offenses. It is quite a popular governmental response in Udonkai. What is their language? Udon, the same as the country's name, is the dominant language for diplomatic purposes. French is taught in schools, but only the middle class can afford to send its children. And since English is the common commercial language and almost all members of the middle class are merchants in one form or another, the French isn't used except to impress others. Some of the mountain tribes are alleged to speak in unrecorded dialects, but data is difficult to come by. Because... Because speaking any language other than Udon outside the capital's limits is a crime. Punishable by death? Yes, sir. Punishable by death. Udon Kai claimed a literacy rate of 22%. Unbiased estimates place it much lower. Virtually none of the mountain tribes can read alright. Do we own anything nearby? The closest we have is Sydney, Australia, sir. From there, it is a relatively short hop into Udonkai. I can arrange for use of the private airstrip not far from May now. Is that where the tourists... Yes. Will there be anything else, sir? I need someone who speaks the language. They must speak fluently enough to do simultaneous translation, and they must be familiar with idiomatic speech. Very well, sir. Contact me when you get to Sydney. I should have it all in place by then. Thank you, old friend. Good hunting, sir. My notes? Listeners, I do hope you enjoyed having a genuine British accent read Alfred this time. Thanks again to fiancé of the show, Ian. <laughs> no problem, dear. Oh. Well, that answers the question of how Batman is going to get through the acid test. He's going to cut through the Gordian knot and not do the acid test at all. Chapter 14, Scene 4 Bruce Wayne boarded an international flight non-stop to Sydney, his Australian visa in his pocket. In the privacy of his seat, he examined a strip of computer paper Alfred had beamed over to him a few hours before. Captioned, Udon Kai, Dates of Significance, Alfred's research read in chronological order. 1287 Invaded by the Mongols of Kublai Khan. 1654. Portugal establishes Christian mission. 1824. Annexed to British India. 1883. 
British sell controlling interest to France. 1937. Agreement with France gave some self-rule. Alfred had hand-typed purely illusory after that entry. 1942. Occupied by Japan. 1949. Became a sovereign nation. Democracy established. 1950. Army seized complete control of government. 1973. Popular revolt. Democracy re-established. 1975. Cambodian communists invade through Laos. 1977. Army, under leadership of General Paul Jean Rowe, repels Cambodian forces and again assumes complete control of government. 1988. General Lim Nag seizes power from General Paul Jean Rowe, who hands over the reins in a TV broadcast and is never seen again. The country's airport is renamed in his honor. General Lim Nag forges closer ties with Western nations, the U.S. and Canada in particular. 1991. The child sex industry supplants opium as the country's major producer of hard currency. Alfred would have made a great journalist, the Batman mused to himself. He would have made a great anything. But he gave up his dreams, gave up his whole life to protect me. Bruce Wayne closed his eyes, but it was the Batman who slept. My notes? That was a really efficient way of giving us, the reader, some, some basic background of this fictional country. And a nice little bit of how Batman slash Bruce Wayne regards his butler at the end there. Chapter 14, scene 5. It is another short one, and it's the final one of the chapter, so I'll read this one also. And it was the Batman who placed the Trans-Pacific call from Bruce Wayne's suite on the top floor of the Barrier Reef Hotel in Sydney. Anything new? he asked. Draco's yacht left port 13 days ago, Alfred said. According to our sources, he is heading for Urankai. You have an ETA? Not a precise one, but he should be relatively close even as we speak. You'll have clearance to land at General Paul Jean Rowe Airport tomorrow evening, any time between 2100 hours and midnight, their time. Once you are airborne, signal me, and I will transmit the landing coordinates. No flight plan need be filed. Did you clear the path with the G-Man? The Batman asked. The G-Man was a Chicago teenager named Gino, also known as the Wizard of Weather. The young man ran a specialized service, furnishing weather predictions for any area of the world in micro-detail. Although he used the same satellite data as the commercial weather services, he had devised an interlocking series of complex formulas that squeezed the last drop of accuracy from existing data. The entrepreneurial end of the enterprise was handled by his younger brother, Nicholas, known throughout the city's basketball courts as Nick the Quick. Together, the two brothers had virtually cornered the narrow forecast market worldwide. Of course I did, Alfred replied, not a trace of asperity in his voice. I have been assured that the tsunami off the coast of Thailand will, in fact, dissipate itself somewhere in the Indian Ocean. It should be clear and cloudless all the way in. Thank you, my friend. Anything else? Yes, sir. Your translator is in place. His name is Rama Bhyan. He will meet your plane and stay with you until your work is completed. Will that day ever come? The crime fighter asked the spirits. The answer did not comfort him. My notes? Man, can we get G-Man's weather reports from here on out? A little bit of accuracy in our forecast would be a breath of fresh air. I'm trying not to think of Draco Malfoy any time that name pops up as well. So basically, just some fact-finding missions 
and then starting to move on that information. Bruce Wayne slash Batman is on the move. Well, thank you again for listening to Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose. If you would like to contact me, you can look me up on Twitter at BatmanBooks underscore DKP, or you can email me at DarkNightPros at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Next time, we'll cover chapter 15 and 16. Until next time, Gothamites, happy reading. Batman is copyrighted to DC Comics and was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Bill Finger